8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Thursday, February 22nd. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Mo. A library in the Southern Adirondacks is reopening after the area erupted when controversy over a drag queen story hour drove the head librarian to resign. I've had an awful lot of people stop me on the street and in the store and whenever saying, when are you going to open that library? We need that library. And we took that to heart. This week, we're focusing on stories in the region's complicated history for black residents. Today, a St. Lawrence County historian on the rise of anti-black settlement in the North Country after the Civil War. Jim Crow ideas of race and racism were brought, whereas before the Civil War, the local papers ran serial stories putting out all the stereotypes that we've heard of, racist stereotypes that didn't appear in the press before then. And for today's North Country at Work story, we meet the family running the Woodruff Motel in Keene. All that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Gray and Gray and Associates CPAs, an accounting and financial services firm in northern New York with offices in Canton, Potsdam, and Spring Hill, Florida, graycpas.com, and adirondackexplorer.com and adirondackalmanac.com, presenting daily updated news on public policy, environmental issues, and local communities in the Adirondack Park. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. A public library in the Southern Adirondacks is set to reopen next week. After almost half a year being closed, the library serves four small towns, Lake Luzerne, Stony Creek, Hadley, and Day. The area erupted with controversy last spring after the library invited a drag queen to come read books to the kids. In September, the librarian and another employee resigned. That was five months ago. But now the library has finally hired a new manager. Lucy Grindon reports. The Rockwell Falls Public Library has been through a lot in the past year. Last April, dozens of people showed up at a meeting to discuss a drag queen story hour event on the calendar. Some spoke against it, including local Baptist pastor Josh Jacquard, who was elected to the library's board the following month. Others were in favor of the idea. The meeting turned into a shouting match. This is not a mandatory thing for your kids to The drag queen event never actually happened, but months later, the librarian said employees were still being harassed by the public at work. Last September, the librarian and the youth services director resigned, shutting the library's doors. The board should have been able to hire someone else to run the library a lot sooner, but board members were at an impasse on almost every issue. Three of them resigned, so the board didn't have a quorum, and it couldn't do anything. In December, the New York Education Department got involved. 
the State Board of Regents appointed three new trustees, including the library board's new president, Ted Merzak. I've had an awful lot of people stop me on the street and in the store and whatever saying, when are you going to open that library? We need that library. And we took that to heart. Merzak says that need has been clear over the past five months. Libraries are incredibly important to the community, especially ours. People rely on the library and their inconvenience if they have to go to other places, that's for sure. The other thing is that we have a lot of people in uh, in our community that don't have the ability to access computers and things where they live. And so the library provides that service. On Tuesday night, Merzak and his fellow board members announced that they've hired a new library manager. Her name's Marion Allen. She grew up in the area, according to the library's press release. And she's been working in the elementary school library for the local Hadley-Luzerne Central School District for eight years. With Allen in charge, the library will open again on March 1st, next Friday, making room for reading, computer access, book club meetings, and story hours for kids. Merzak says Allen will be responsible for programming. She had a wealth of ideas when she interviewed, and she'll be coming back to the board to suggest uh, the various things that she wants to do. We will be getting a report from her every month. Uh, At this moment in time, I think we're all on the same page. So we're not going to micromanage the library manager. Of course, library programming could cause conflict again, the way it did last year with the Drag Queen Story Hour controversy. Merzak says they'll have to cross that bridge if they come to it. In the meantime, he says the best thing the library can do is try and figure out what people want. To that end, the board also announced on Tuesday night that it's reconstituting the Strategic Planning Committee to survey community members. And that's what the library needs to do. It needs to meet the needs of the community and what they want to have. The committee will have to write up an official strategic plan. Merzak says the state is requiring all public libraries to submit those. The deadline to do so has actually already passed. But we've been given a little grace period because of the chaos, and they know we're working on it. So, yeah, that will definitely inform us as to where we go with what sort of programs and the kinds of things people want and how we would react to things that are controversial. No question about it. Merzak says the board's first priority was just to hire someone to open the library. And now they've gotten that done. He also says the board may appoint up to two more community members to the Strategic Planning Committee and may also hire a couple additional employees in the near future. Lucy Grindon, North Country Public Radio. St. Lawrence County officials are extending a state of emergency declaration until March 6th amidst the ongoing migrant crisis in New York State. According to North Country Now, this comes after New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently told the press that he was exploring options to move migrants out of the city and into upstate housing. Last fall, Messina officials said they were blindsided when CBS reported that the Department of Homeland Security had selected the village's airport as a potential shelter. At the time, the owner of the Quality 
Lien in Messina also reached out to Mayor Adams to offer to house 200 migrants at his property. Village Mayor Greg Paquin pushed back. He told the paper that he'd welcome migrants, quote, with open arms if the town had the resources. Police in Saranac Lake are investigating the death of a man whose body was found in the village yesterday. In a post on Facebook, police said the man's body was found beneath a bridge on Pine Street. As of late yesterday, Saranac Lake Police and the New York State Police were on the scene investigating. The local police chief said there was no threat to the public. The body will be transported to the hospital in Glens Falls for an autopsy tomorrow. A former Potsdam police officer who was accused of strangling a suspect in custody last year took a plea deal Tuesday. According to the Watertown Daily Times, 46-year-old Matthew Seymour was charged with criminal obstruction of breathing, a misdemeanor. He was fired shortly after his arrest. Seymour was set to go to trial in Norfolk Town Court, but instead pled guilty to disorderly conduct. That's a violation and not a crime. The Times reports that if he stays out of trouble for one year and abides in, uh, abides by an order of protection, the case will be sealed and he won't have a criminal record. Rising temperatures are fueling concerns about Lake Champlain's water levels. There's no immediate threat of flooding. However, Plattsburgh Mayor Eric Rosenquist told the Press Republican that the melting snow could cause higher water levels ice jams and flash floods later this spring. As of yesterday, Lake Champlain's water level sat at three feet below flood levels and is expected to get lower over the weekend. And a girls' ice hockey team in the Southern Adirondacks took home the state championship title Saturday. Adirondack United has players from several school districts in Warren, Washington, and Saratoga counties. The team was down two goals to zero at the end of the first period against a team from Western New York. Senior Bailey Duffy told the Glens Falls Post Star that her team had to get past its first period jitters. We came, we came battling back. I would give a lot of credit to our fans over there. Having them in your ear, helping you out when you're tired, and to just keep pushing even though you're down to nothing really helps out. So thanks to the parents and the siblings. Adirondack United ended up winning 7-3 to thanks in part to a hat trick from freshman Emily McCauley. It feels so good. I'm so excited for what's to come with this team, and it's just, it's just amazing. Adirondack United is in its second year as a program. With its state championship win, the team finished the season undefeated. You can keep up with news throughout the day at our website, ncpr.org, or follow the station on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 11 minutes past 8. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Stick around. We'll meet the family running the Woodruff Motel in Keene. That's in just a few minutes here on Northern Light.
This is music by B Children here in Canton. Check out more of their music on our website. Visit the underscore page um, at ncpr.org slash underscore. Clouds, scattered showers today, highs upper 30s, low 40s, light winds out of the south. Northern Light is supported by Cronin's Golf Resort, a regional destination for golf, dining, lodging, and the southern Adirondacks. Details at croninsgolfresort.com. This Black History Month, we're re-airing stories from the last year about black history and life in the North Country. Earlier this year, a North Country historian released a new book detailing the lives of black people in the region from before the Revolutionary War to the 1930s, when white supremacists drove most of the black community out. Catherine Wheeler brings us this story. Brian Thompson says his interest in St. Lawrence County's Black history started with his children's education. I am the adoptive parent of two Black children. And when my son was in fourth grade, in fourth grade, they're supposed to learn state and local history. And in the conference with his teacher near the end of the year, I asked about what Black history my son had learned. And the response is that he was absent the one day we talked about Black history. And that sort of set my ears on edge. Thompson is the town of DeKalb's historian. He's researched the North Country's history for decades and won awards for his work. Thompson also taught courses for future elementary school history teachers at SUNY Potsdam. He says he knew teachers at the time didn't have a lot of resources about black history in New York State, let alone the North Country. I thought about it a lot, and I talked to some black friends of mine, and thinking maybe someone who is black should write this. And a friend of mine who was an English teacher, an African-American English teacher at SUNY Potsdam said to me, if you don't write it, nobody else will. And so then I started. It took me 20 years of research to put this book together. That book is called African-Americans of St. Lawrence County. Thompson says the North Country's black history starts right when Europeans began to colonize the area. When Abby Francis Piquet came to found La Presentation in what's today Ogdensburg, he came with an enslaved man, Charles, and the community at La Presentation included a black woman who was a midwife, only listed in the birth and death records as the Negress, so we don't have a name for her. Thompson says before New York finally emancipated slaves in 1827, the wealthiest families in St. Lawrence County enslaved people in places like Waddington and Ogdensburg. It was a sign of social status. Thompson says after emancipation, the white people in the county wouldn't sell land to black people. That meant they had to move around to find work. Before the Civil War, relations between white and black people in St. Lawrence County varied from community to community. Thompson says there were a lot of interracial marriages and people could get along, but all of that changed after the Civil War. Jim Crow ideas of race and racism were brought, whereas before the Civil War, there were many ardent abolitionists and they talked about in the newspapers about the noble African After the Civil War, the N-word slang started to appear in huge numbers in the local papers, and the local papers ran serial stories 
putting out all the stereotypes that we've heard of, racist stereotypes that didn't appear in the press before then. They'd run these fiction serial stories which showed African-Americans to be ignorant. They could only speak in pidgin English or whatever. And that just was not the case before the war. Those things weren't talked about in that way. Thompson says many white people in the North Country didn't want to admit they were abolitionists. Abolitionists were blamed for the war, the high death toll, and the economic downturn that followed. So anti-black sentiment rose. Then the racist propaganda film The Birth of a Nation was shown in St. Lawrence County in the 1920s. The Madrid newspaper editor talking about how young people should go to see the movie to learn about the big mistake of trying to integrate black people into society and treat them as equal human beings. And Madrid was one of the centers of the abolitionist movement during the Civil War and after the Civil War, the Scottish Presbyterian Church raised large amounts of money and sent members to the South to teach in the freedom schools that, that taught illiterate former slaves how to read and write and do math. And here a generation later, newspaper editors telling people we need to learn that that was a mistake and we should never have done that. The Ku Klux Klan rose in the North Country between the 1920s and 30s. Thompson says papers in faraway places like Chicago warned Black people about migrating to a place like Messina, where the Klan was terrorizing Black residents. Thompson says this was the peak of anti-Black racism in St. Lawrence County. And by the 1930s, almost all of the Black communities were gone. Thompson says putting together this history was hard. He would find a couple of sentences here and there. He says without census records, oftentimes there would be no record that someone existed. One of the stories I tell in the book is about the Fry family of Governor and Flora Fry was given a land grant by Garrett Smith when he was giving land to free black men, two from every county in the state so they could vote because there was a poll tax in New York for black people. And I wanted to find out why a woman got it, because she couldn't vote anyway for another 75 years uh, in New York. Um, and I had dug out incredible records, but a little piece here, a little piece there, all starting with Garrett Smith's records of her. Thompson's book often focuses on individuals and families to illustrate the Black community's experiences in a particular place and time. I think that's an important way to tell history because it makes it personal to us. There's got to be somebody in that book that you as a reader will relate to, whether it's Nanny and what she goes through in her travails with pregnancy, whether it's the Boston family raising multiple generations of, of their family in the Messina area and fighting in the Civil War, or... If it's George Swan being a successful businessman, there should be somebody there that you can relate to in the book, I hope. That was my goal. Thompson says the Black community's resilience is the most important takeaway of the book. He says this history has always been a part of the North Country, and it's important to acknowledge and learn about it. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio, in DeKalb. This story originally aired last November. Thompson's book, African Americans of St. Lawrence County, is out now. Tomorrow on Northern Light, the final part of our week exploring black life and history in the North Country. Hear the story of a museum in the Adirondacks that's piecing together the truth from mysterious photos from the 1930s and how they're partnering with a black artist to bear witness to it.
You're listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandresky. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we'll pay a visit to the Woodruff Motel in Keene. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note. We'll uh, hear from artist Deborah Ramsey on creating abstract paintings of migratory birds. That's coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Mild temperatures today and tomorrow. Then it's going to get colder. Then it's going to get warmer again. Highs this afternoon in the upper 30s, low 40s, scattered rain possible, light winds out of the south, maybe a mix of rain, sleet, snow overnight tonight, temperatures uh, near 30, and about a 60-70% chance of a wintry mix tomorrow, highs upper 30s near 40 on Friday. Saturday it's going to be colder, partly cloudy skies, highs in the teens, single digits overnight Saturday, Sunday a high near 30. Monday, a high in the 30s. Tuesday, next Tuesday, high, low 40s. And maybe a high near 50 next Wednesday with a chance of rain. Right now in Canton, we have clouds and uh, 30, 39 degrees. So driving around the North Country, you may have noticed closed down, boarded up motels in just about every town. They're everywhere. From the 1940s until the 1990s, small family-run motels did a lot of business in the Adirondacks. This next North Country at Work story is about one of them and how Sue Abbott Jones and a downstate family ended up running it. Amy Fye Reisel has more. In 1968, a New Jersey couple moved to the Adirondacks and bought the Woodruff Motel in Keene. Just to have an independent business and be in a rural area. That's Sue Abbott Jones, the oldest of that couple's children. When her parents bought the motel, she had just graduated from college. And I said, I will not move up to this podunk area. (laughs) And I moved to San Francisco. Fast forward to 1975, and Sue had moved to the Adirondacks to teach at Lake Placid High School. She met a fellow teacher, Tom Kennelly. They got married and had a child. In 1978, Sue's parents were looking to sell the motel and retire. My parents said, why don't you buy the motel? Well, my parents had done it, so we thought, sure, we can do it. It wasn't quite that easy. Two months in, Sue and Tom called for reinforcements. The rest of Tom's family, the Kennelys, back in Long Island. And they were ready. So his sister came with her her two kids and her husband. His single brother came and his parents. By the next summer, everybody was in Keene. The motel was 19 units spread over nine acres of land and included a luncheonette, a gas station, and a swimming pool. I saw this as a grand experiment in all living together and off the land and all of that. I never worked so hard in my whole life. Our degrees were in education, social work, not in, uh, you know, bookkeeping, repairs, and all of that. I mean... Nothing. We knew nothing. (laughs) What it came down to was a lot of bookings, cleanings, and the endless task of patching holes. The septic system was always a chore. It's Keene Valley, and that's where all the water runs. (laughs) And so we learned really fast. I'm still good as a, you know, minor plumber. But plumbing problems had nothing on the bane of Sue's existence. Answering the phone at a time without voicemail. So we were on duty, uh, my husband and I, 24 hours a day. And we could not leave because if you didn't answer the phone, you didn't get a, a reservation. And they needed every last reservation they could get. Summers were always hopping, but the rest of the year, it was feast or famine. 
The shoulder seasons were deadly slow. But eventually, they got into the swing of things. They made friends with other small motels and local businesses, learned how to do their taxes and advertise. And then I love the customers because uh, back then, people went back to the same place every year. You could just be a family. You know, you didn't have to be a professional because they came because it was a family. They also learned that some customers had certain expectations of the North Country. You know, like milk, go out and milk the cow and <laughs> shoot a deer. <laughs> I would have hated to tell them, we're from downstate too. (laughs) Most customers at that time came from western and central New York. But just a few years after they took over the motel, things got international. It was the winter of 1980. The Olympics were being held in Lake Placid. Every motel for miles around was filled up, including the Woodruff. The South Korean national ski team stayed there for six weeks, arriving in January. There wasn't snow, uh, so we found them roller skis, and they could at least do, you know, cross-country type practice. And and then the, uh, we had two uh, Korean war brides in Keene and their families. So they would join them every night, and they'd cook them for them like they were their mothers. <laughs> it was really, really fun. That was great. The Woodruff also played host to the Czechoslovakian press, who were constantly trying to file stories. Lake Placid's high school had been converted into a communication center for the media, but it was still only open during the day. The only phone at the motel was in the office, and the office was connected to Sue's home. One night, she woke up to a noise. Rattling around at like four in the morning, and I look, and one of the press was trying to get to my phone through the window. He was climbing through the window into, my, into our house. Sue says the motel became part of the Keene community. They held weddings there and hosted the town's summer swimming program in their pool. But by 1982, Sue was pretty tired. She had to work when her kids had their school breaks. Small motels in general were struggling against bigger chains. So our rooms became too small to be uh, certified by AAA. So, I mean, it was devastating. You had to have other jobs. So Sue and her husband decided to leave the motel. The other Kennelys bought them out. But they didn't leave the region. Sue started teaching again, and 40 years later, she still lives here in Saranac Lake. Though she and Tom divorced, and it was only four years they were at the Woodruff Motel, she says it was a really special time and some of the most fun she ever had. For North Country Public Radio's North Country Work Project, I'm Amy Feierisel. The Woodruff Motel did stay in the Kennelly family into the 90s, eventually converted to long-term rentals. Today, you'd hardly recognize it. The property was bought and transformed into the Dartbrook Lodge, a luxury resort with a gourmet restaurant instead of a luncheonette. This story originally aired in the winter of 2020. You're listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. It's 827. Good morning. I'm Monica Sandresky here with Todd Moe. And before we sign off for the day, we want to remind you about a few events going on throughout the community, including the current exhibit at the Brush Art Gallery at St. Lawrence University in Canton. It's German Modernism, Sound and Vision, presents a range of aesthetic styles and movements from early 20th century German modernism, like naturalism, expressionism, and abstraction. Really taking a look at that uh, at the response following World War One, you can see work across various me- various media, including woodcuts, lithographs, etchings, screen pens, and ink drawings. You can find out more at uh, ncpr.org/calendar. 
And there's going to be some great old-time string band music being performed at the Tannery Pond Community Center this Sunday afternoon from 3 to 5 as part of their winter coffeehouse series. Stop by and listen to music by High on the Hog. The trio will present uh, tunes they love to play, including early country songs, old-time string band music, and some originals. That's, uh, That's the trio High on the Hog, Sunday afternoon, 3 to 5 at the Tannery Pond Community Center in North Creek as part of the Winter Coffeehouse Series. And as one last thing, too, tomorrow evening in Delta, Ontario, they're sort of doing a cool thing at the Bastard Coffee House. It's called Songs in Conversation. Allie McCormick, known as the Lioness of Lanark, is the month's featured songwriter. And Pat Johnson will be the host as the two of them engage with the audience by sharing music, stories, and discussing the craft of songwriting. That's coming up tomorrow evening from 6 to 8 at the Bastard Coffee House in Delta, Ontario. And my apologies to Plattsburgh Mayor Chris Rosenquist for getting his name wrong in news copy earlier this half hour. Sorry about that, Mr. Mayor. Chris Rosenquist of Plattsburgh. Don't take too much credit for that, Todd. I'm the one that wrote <laughs> wrote that. So I appreciate you making that apology on my behalf. That is the story, uh, show for the day, though. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. And after that, it's the Marketplace Morning Report coming up between 8.51 and 9 o'clock. Then this afternoon on Here and Now between 1 and 3 o'clock, an Arab-American coalition in Michigan wants primary voters to vote uncommitted, not for President Biden. Hear more about their campaign to pressure President Biden into calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. That's coming up on Here and Now between 1 and 3 right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Monica Sandresky. And I'm Todd Moe. Thanks for listening. Be well.